Today's reading is from Colossians 2. For I want you to know how greatly I am struggling for you, for those in Laodicea, and for, the, for all who have not seen me in person. I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I am saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable, for I may be absent in the body, but I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well ordered you are and the strength of your faith in Christ. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ when you were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with his obligations that were against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regards to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. Let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to such a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. He doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole, the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grow, grows with growth from God. If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. Although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and a severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we lift up our eyes to the hills because where does our help come from? Our help comes from you, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who will not let our foot slip. So today as we gather together, we ask for, for your help. We ask that you would be present, that your spirit would be working, 
We ask that you would keep our feet from slipping, that what would be manifest here today, what you would be speaking to our hearts and our minds, to my heart and mind, would be nothing but truth, nothing but you. And in your name we pray, amen. So last Sunday, Pastor Daryl started off our new series on idols. And where we are going to lean in more today is regarding idolatry specifically within our faith, specifically within what that can look like in our church circles. Christianity is an easy thing to use to justify our idolatry at times. And one of the most obvious places that we can see this is on social media via the spiritual humble brag. So to just kind of warm us up a little bit, I give you some legit tweets. So one woman tweeted, Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Hashtag my kid, hashtag student of the month. <laughs> so one woman tweeted, Matthew 10.30, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Hashtag new haircut, hashtag hottie, hashtag single no more. One woman tweeted, the builders are almost finished with our 4,500 square foot house, and we should be able to move in the next couple weeks. The granite countertops look incredible with the ebony cabinets, and the kids love the waterfall pool. My personal favorite, though, the movie room. To God be the glory. This was commented on, <laughs> trying to decide if I should say his name. Okay, so this was commented on by Stephen Furtig, Pastor Stephen Furtig. His response was, wow, oh, it's painful. That is only 4,000 square feet smaller than my house. To God be the glory. Smiley face. One man tweeted, huge promotion at work this week. Finally reached six figures. Hashtag blessed. My last, this last one is my favorite. If I can do it, anyone can. Day 22 of CrossFit in that paleo lifestyle has me feeling better than ever. I want everyone to feel this great. Hashtag blessed, hashtag your best body now, hashtag CrossFit, hashtag it's not a diet, it's a lifestyle, hashtag to God be the glory. Social media partially exists to share all the things, okay? Post your kid getting student of the month, post your new hair, your new house, but using this spiritual language to justify elevating yourself is extremely problematic. On one hand, it can be problematic with what you're communicating to others in community. If I don't have a job, does that mean God's withholding blessing from me? My kid struggles in school, so does that mean God does not want to be glorified through us? I can barely make my rent. So is God coming down on me hard, but loving this other person more? But it also is problematic because it kind of demonstrates that we think that God co-signs on our idolatry. So these, this, these are obvious examples of things that make our understanding of the gospel and our relationship with community and church a little distorted, when we are taught that God is promising things that he has not, when we are taught that God's posture towards us is one way that it isn't. And church can get really messy in this way, and it has done a lot of damage. 
church is complicated. It's where I personally have experienced some of the deepest relational strife. It is where I have seen people at their worst. It has brought out the worst in me. It has betrayed my trust. It's lied to me at times. And I know a lot of your stories and that a lot of you have at times felt that same way. But for me, even when I have felt the most indignant or done with it, I've never been able to feel like church is a hopeless space. There is something that has always kept me tethered, oftentimes beyond what I logically think should be true. And that's not me, it's the Holy Spirit. Um, there's also a big part of me, and maybe this is personality, the Holy Spirit plus Enneagram number, where when I see corruption, it only fuels me and makes me want to be a part of making it better. That's always the point. The point when I'm hearing something that's not true or where I can clearly see idolatry in those faith spaces, that's the thing that makes me think, this is why we don't stop. This is why we keep pushing harder. This is why it is urgent for us to do something about this. We are here to work towards renewal. We can't quit. Active renewal needs to be happening constantly in the church and in our faith. And where we have gone wrong is rooted in our idolatry. It is where we have corporately and individually sacrificed the true nature of the gospel in order to accommodate our preferences, our desire for power, our politics, our comforts. It's where we have strategically, maybe without even realizing it, formed a Christianity that caters to our deepest held idols. This happens on a couple levels. This can happen systematically, systemically. I kept saying systemically. I'll, I'll say corporately. This can happen corporately, and this can happen individually. And I think where we have idols in both of those spaces can kind of meet in an intense, difficult, and unique way when it comes to our Christianity and our churches. So, today I'm going to ask us to really examine ourselves. For God to give us the eyes to see, for us to be honest with ourselves, where are there spaces in our faith practice that we have allowed or chosen to let idolatry play a functional role. In our passage today, the Colossians are kind of going through something similar. Paul is writing to the Colossians from a Roman prison. He actually never went to visit them, but he heard that they were allowing other aspects of things to infiltrate their faith. So what that ended up meaning is they were adding additional requirements to Christianity. Throughout the book of Colossians, you kind of see that there are two different spaces that this is coming from. On the one hand, they have things that they are adding to their Christianity that are from Judaism. And they're hanging on to the old and incorporating that with what is new. So what is tradition? What is comfortable? What's the way it's always been done? And then on the other hand, they are adding things specifically related to Gnosticism, different forms of philosophy. So they're adding in what's new to what God requires. So what's the tide of the culture? 
what makes sense to people outside of the faith, and adding in that way. What can you not let go of as being an essential in your faith or what you expect in church because of nostalgia or because the church culture you came from did it a certain way and that somehow met you in a unique way, so you need to do whatever you can to get that back. Where do you miss the good old days and you're spending a lot of time trying to reach for that again? I want a church structured this way, or even I need to always vote this way because the religious spaces I come from say this, or as simple as I need to clock in this much time in my special prayer chair in the corner of my living room every day in order for God to give me favor. It can go as simple as that. What have you made essential and what is new? I think that this can go a couple different ways. I think sometimes we chase after whatever is new, whatever is shiny, because we're discontent. I think that there are times when you are discontent when that can be something you need to listen to. But are you someone that no matter where you bounce to, you always end up feeling discontent? Are you chasing after something that might not even exist? Are you prioritizing something in your faith that isn't even supposed to be there? I think other way we can see this is, are you always going after what is new because you are so angry or disenchanted by what the old did to you? We need to get out of toxic and damaging situations. We have to, full stop. There are faith-related spaces that when I think of having to be back there, it makes my stomach turn. But has it taken a turn for you where it has made you almost demonize everything about that? Or has it taken a turn for you where you have decided to wear that as a burden on your back? I think romanticizing or demonizing the past and letting that shape your practice leads to idolatry. Idolatry that serves you the most. The root is self. Pastor Daryl talked about this last week. This is the sin of the garden. We idolize self, and that ends up being the greatest dictator of how we decide we're going to function in our faith and our worship. So let's jump to verse four. We're gonna be jumping around. We're not going in order today. So verse four says, I am saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. This arguments that sound reasonable in the Greek is specifically this idea of a lawyer who is seducing you with such seductive arguments that someone who actually is guilty gets off clear. So some of what we idolize, I think it's easy to identify, it's obvious. But I think where this gets tricky is exactly right here, where a lot of what we idolize can be reasonable, it's logical, it makes sense, and we can justify it. So this, my friends, is another reason we do not practice our faith alone. You're the best at fooling you. I had a professor, a religions professor, who always said, you can make yourself believe whatever you really want to. 
We need community to identify and fight our idolatry in our faith. There was a recent poll by Christianity Today, came out in August, I think, where 52% of churchgoers did not think that they needed other believers in their community in order to grow in their faith. If you think that's true, you have an incredibly high opinion of yourself, or you're a lot stronger than me. Left to our own, we will always seduce ourselves with our own arguments. We're really good at justifying something, especially that we want. We're really good at convincing ourselves things are different than they are. Truth-tellers in community help keep us from becoming enslaved to just something else. Community can also help us anticipate or see where other idolatry might be possible. In verse 8, Paul says, Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. So this um, be careful is kind of like a lookout. <laughs> Beware. Watch out. Anticipate. Actively try to see what's coming for you. You need people to help, and you need diversity in your community to help with this, no matter what that looks like. Age, stage, race, everything. Because you need people who have different experience than you do, who are of a different demographic than you are, because they are going to see things you never would, or things that you really just don't want to. This is why it's good to not group up just young marrieds, just singles, whatever it might be. We need each other. You need them, they need you. So where do we watch out? He says this in verse eight. Big issue in the Colossian church is human tradition, philosophy as a part of Christianity. So when they're choosing to incorporate that, that's like saying what is offered in the gospel is not enough. Adding idolatry to our faith is, means the gospel needs some supplements. It's not complete as is. And of course you're going to fill those things in with idolatry, with things that you want. And you end up with a compromised gospel that is more dictated by your own agendas and desires than by Christ. The church has done and is doing this, and we do this as well. It is vital to identify and uproot idolatry in this way because you might end up having a crisis of faith. A lot of people do. But you might be having a crisis of faith because what you created is what's not working. What you were told is the gospel is failing you. What you thought being a Christian would produce for you, even though God didn't promise that, is not ending up the way you thought. Gospel isn't failing you. Gospel cannot fail. But you fail yourself. Your idols fail you. So we got to watch out. Let's jump to verse 16. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. Let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels, 
claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. Side note, gotta love Paul. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. He doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with growth from God. All right, Paul's saying a lot here. A little bit of what he's saying, though, is that you're complete in Christ. He freed you up from all this extra stuff that you are now adding, which means you're choosing to hang on to things that he has already set you free from. And then you use those things to judge the spirituality of other believers. We will always go further with our idolatry. It isn't isolated to you. We will then use it to judge our fellow believers. One way we do this is by tying guarantees to promises that God gives us. Scripture is full of a lot of principles, right, of this will go well with you if you do this. But I think we sometimes treat those like these hardcore guarantees and promises, and then we add things onto them, which means we often end up saying the Bible is saying something it doesn't, that God is saying something that he isn't. So like if you draw these parameters around your relationship, you will have a fulfilling biblical marriage. I do that because people throw that around. Who even knows what that means? If you raise your kids this way, they will be gleefully obedient for the rest of their lives. If you memorize these scriptures, if you vote this way, if you listen to this, if you don't watch this, if you dress modestly, if you never wear shorts that are shorter than fingertip length or something, this is what will happen. This is what you will get. This is how fulfilled you will be. If you need to create boundaries around an area where you are struggling with sin, you do that in all wisdom. You do that in brothers and sisters, you support that person. But the problem is, is when we need those boundaries and we then kind of make them a Christian absolute and require that everyone must do them. So we end up adding burdens onto our community that God had set us free from. Also in this portion, we have another nod to Gnosticism. It's killing me to not talk forever about Gnosticism, but we got a lot to cover. So they believed that the body was evil, all matter was evil, so it needed to be suppressed. So they were requiring asceticism as a requirement for their Christian practice. The Gnostics also very much prided themselves on having like a secret knowledge of things. And I think we are really good at idolizing what kind of gives us this sense that we have a greater understanding, we're a little more enlightened, we have more insight, or what shows that we are really disciplined. And I think we really love those things because they often project holiness or humility, and then we end up kind of buying into that ourselves, that we are this way. So idolatry in this way can kind of be this self-inflation hidden by our piety all the while kind of thinking that you're God's gift to God. I'm God's gift to my community, right? Isn't it great you guys have me? 
This can also be displayed in expecting things to accommodate and adjust for you in church. I'm not being met here. Other churches I've been to have done it this way, so y'all need to do it this way because this is the one right way. Or it can be a real Christian wouldn't believe this nuance of Scripture is interpreted this way. Or it can be, that's not the right way to engage God. Fill in the blank. Hopefully these are helping you think of some things. A real Christian wouldn't listen to that, watch that. A real Christian, after all, the most Christian you can be, is a premillennial complementarian five-point Calvinist, which is what I grew up knowing, okay? But in a way, like, we end up kind of creating this uh, Christian caste system with whatever our brand is being right at the top. Christian enlightenment arrogance can exist on the other end as well. I think as what Christianity looks like in our context is kind of evolving in different ways, which it always should, there's a lot of necessary discussion amongst Christians right now about what the church in the past has done wrong, where it has damaged people. There's a lot, and I know a lot of you have felt that as well. There's a lot that has been deeply hurtful. There's a lot that has made God angry, God grieve, has made us angry, has made us grieve. But while we are truth-tellers, mourning, being angry, we must guard ourselves lest our own self-righteousness takes over and our disdain for church as a whole is now our new idol. My ability to see is a little greater. I'm going to give the church the silent treatment almost, which who does that actually hurt? We let what has been death in our past in the church continue to contribute death for us, and we will then spread that to others instead of contributing life. Instead of choosing to channel that into how we are supposed to work towards renewal in this space. Tell the truth, find a healthy space to process and rest and do what you need. But as followers of Christ, we always have hope in our message. As Christians who have experienced the damage and by God's grace can see a little more, it is our call to work towards changing it. When we switch to Christian bashing or almost being like, I'm above needing church now. We maybe even turn, I've been seeing this one, we turn and look at people who still love church, we look down on them, and we're almost offended by the way that they're still practicing. You gotta get over yourself a little bit. Your idol has just shifted now. We are very talented at creating factions and denominations while considering ourselves to be the most enlightened. Hanging on to things or giving things up that God does not say we have to and calling them requirements is not holding Christ above all. And when Christ isn't held above all, he isn't held at all. That's what he's saying in verse 19. They're not holding to Christ, the source. Verse 19 strikes a little fear in my heart, and the reason is, is because he is talking about people who have some very obvious extreme religious practice. They look really holy, they're doing all the things, they're even doing above and beyond what God requires, and yet Paul kind of says, they're not even holding to Christ, they don't even know him, 
should strike a little fear in all of our hearts. Verse 20 says, If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. Although these have a reputation for wisdom, by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment to the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. If you say you are in Christ and you create rules that fit in with your lifestyle, your idols are enslaving you in the name of your brand of Christianity. And Paul is saying in verse 23, these things have a reputation for wisdom. They look good. They look like good Christian behaviors. But good Christian behaviors can even become an idol easily for us in the church. Is your walk driven by you feeling like you need to either put on or hide? Is your faith shaped primarily by what you are trying to project to the church as a whole, to one person? Or do you kind of live with this foreboding feeling of what if I'm found out? And maybe you don't even know what found out means, but it's just kind of hovering over you. Trying to keep up the facade is idolatry of appearance, acceptance, influence. Humility and vulnerability in community is the only way out. And it is a choice you make to engage in that. What the Colossians are experiencing here, and what we do, it is not new. This is old news. God's people combining their own interests with their faith and worship happened in the Old Testament. Think of the prophets. Think of uh, the passage that Pastor Dale preached on two weeks ago, the Isaiah passage. They are using religious activity, this appearance of fasting, while completely ignoring what God is actually telling them to do functionally. The book of Micah is basically God building this case against God's people about how they are practicing injustice, but they are hiding behind their acts of worship to kind of make it be like, but we're good. Zephaniah, the whole book of Zephaniah, God is bringing heat down on them because their idolatry and their worship is ending up Um, oppressing other people, most of the prophets somehow come back to this idea. They did it all the time. And then Jesus comes on the scene and the pattern remains. Who did Jesus kind of throw it down with the most? It was not the godless government officials. It wasn't the uh, secular culture makers. It wasn't the poor or the lost. It was God's people. He is calling out repeatedly how their comfort, their self-interest, and their power have infiltrated what it looks like to practice their faith. Jesus refers to the religious as evil, adulterous, snakes, and blind fools. He tells them they have hardness of heart. He tells them that they are acting like they're tying heavy burdens on people's backs that they cannot carry. He tells them they are whitewashed tombs full of the bones of the dead. In Matthew 23, 
Jesus says their religious practice, quote, shuts the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, and that they travel over land and sea to make one convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as fit for hell as you are. Jesus doesn't mess around. Paul takes idolatry and faith seriously because Jesus does. He is angry about God being misrepresented by people's idolatry. Jesus calls out where their faith has been modified by power, desires, and comforts. And I think most importantly, Jesus points out that this has some dire consequences, that when you allow idolatry to infiltrate this space, you end up exporting a false gospel and leading other people that way as well. When our idols take precedence and we modify Christianity, we produce this neutered, weak gospel. We give people a fake version of the real thing. And we end up shutting the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces we end up making people twice as fit for hell as we are. Jesus' words, not mine. Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me, to fall away, it would be better if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So this is why it matters so much that we actually do the work of digging up where is their idolatry in my own faith, but also where is this present in our corporate spaces? Where do we need to work towards renewal here? So where do we see this in American church culture? Why is it that the majority church culture is projecting a gospel that doesn't seem sharp enough to cut into racism, sexism, and nationalism? How is it that we have a Christianity where people are using it to justify not allowing interracial marriages at their venues? Why is it that we have a Christianity where we have multiple prominent pastors supporting politicians who assault women and don't allow for immigrant rights? Why is it that we have a Christianity that allows nationalists to use scripture to back their actions? Individualizing the gospel, and I think removing God's heart for justice from the gospel, in the service of idols like politics and power, have created this majority culture Christianity that is not about cultivating this space as God's dominion, but is more about cultivating this space as the domain of the privileged. So we need a little historical flyby to see how we got here. Now I'm going to be dying a little bit on the inside as I leave out about 99% of what I wish I could say. This is maybe going to be more of like a bouncing, okay? So... This is what happened about at this point, this point, this point, just to give us some examples. Because what I want us to realize is this has intentionally been crafted. This has intentionally happened over time. So the Puritans, start with Puritans. Oh, inside note. So consider this a primer, because in this sermon series, we actually have weeks reserved, specifically for nationalism, specifically for issues related to idolatry and citizenship. Okay, so it's coming. And Pastor Daryl will do that, so it'll be great. All right, so the Puritans settled here in 1620. I grew up in a church culture where it's like the Puritans were like on par with Jesus, okay? We loved the Puritans. But I, didn't, I learned a lot about the Puritans this week that I never learned before. 
The Puritans settled here in 1620 seeking religious freedom and land with this mindset of this is um, the land that God has given us, this view that God is going to begin his work through us in America, kind of this manifest destiny idea. Puritans also believed in this God-ordained hierarchy. So they're above Native Americans, they're above Africans, even like Anglicans. Basically, if you're not Puritan, they're at the top. So with this, we have settlers coming and taking their God-ordained land through violence and genocide, killing millions of indigenous people. But then what do you do? If you steal more land, then you can work, but you see the potential for wealth. So millions of Africans are purchased to be the backbone of our economy with God apparently signing off on that. If you, um, I need to keep going. Okay, if you wanna know more about specifically the whole theological train of thought backing that, there are a lot of good books, but the first few chapters of Ibram Kendi's Stamped from the Beginning um, pulls this out really well. So write it down and read it. Read the whole book, actually, okay? So we have millions of people stolen, slaughtered, in the name of God. The revival of the Great Awakening, the 1730s and 40s, which again, I learned so much about the Great Awakening growing up. We loved us some Edwards and some Whitfield. But they were not just about turning away from sin. There was a lot in the Great Awakening where they were incorporating some very pointed political concepts with Christianity, specifically related to this idea of individualism, freedom, and democracy. So those are very pointedly being incorporated with Christianity at that point. Which means by the time of the American Revolution, this whole idea of more individualism was a very dominant thought in evangelicalism. So in the 1830s, so hard to jump, okay, in the 1830s, you have northern and southern evangelicals who for the most part had still sort of stayed connected, 18th and 1830s ends up splitting all of the major denominations because they could not agree on how the gospel informs slavery. The anti-slavery movement at that point, because that's gonna change, it's growing very rapidly actually in the North, which meant in the South, pastors felt like they were under assault by that. So they actually started double, doubling down even more in their theology, arguing slavery was biblical, necessary to the economy, and having their theology shaped to defend racial inequality. Southern churches ended up not being open then to any kind of reform because they knew that it would be a slippery slope if they allowed reform in any area to open up the questioning of slavery. Churches in the North started disconnecting social action in the gospel, actually post-Civil War. One of the people who was very vocal about this, some of you I'm about to ruin a couple of your heroes, was evangelist Dwight Moody. He heavily preached this focus on individual sin and individual consequences with the message that if every American embraced Christ, 
all the social ills would disappear, which is still a very commonly held concept. Some of you feel it. Church I grew up, okay, people I still, like, I deeply love them, but if you talk about anything bad happening in the world, it is a shaking of the head. They just need to know Jesus. So this is where this very pointedly comes from. Moody even blamed poverty on the poor and taught that conversion would bring prosperity, saying, quote, I don't know how a man can follow Christ and not be successful. So this is really the start of this almost an animosity towards the social aspect of the gospel amongst evangelicals. Evangelist Billy Sunday said, quote, some people are trying to make a religion out of social service with Jesus Christ left out. We've had enough of this godless social service nonsense. So the gospel was very much just for shaping self, not for shaping systems. This Jesus that was presented cared very much about how you're doing with him, but not necessarily about how you're doing in community. With World War I, that's where you end up getting war in the gospel more intertwined. Again, Billy Sunday, he says, zeal for war and for the gospel are the same thing. Christianity and patriotism are synonymous terms. For an American to refuse to share in the present war is not Christian. So one of the big movements then in the wake of World War I was a much stronger, more obvious movement in churches towards nationalism and actually a disdain and hostility towards immigrants. Meanwhile, around that time, 1915, we have the KKK being revived, right in our backyard, by a Methodist preacher, William Joseph Simmons. Membership specifically being for white Christians, with a burning cross representing the light of Christ, this red teardrop representing the atonement and sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and by the early 1920s, the Klan boasted 5 million members, okay? 5 million Christians infiltrating thousands of churches with a gospel that somehow supports them. That doesn't just go away. The aftermath of World War II is where you start getting this stronger movement of Christian patriotism with ties of Christians trying to get involved with politicians. And this happens because of this huge fear of communism. Billy Graham, okay, I'm about to super ruin Billy Graham for you guys, okay? So, and here's, if you have loved him all your life, you're gonna be fine, okay? We've got a lot, he, I've got some doozies from him, so buckle up. Yeah, thanks, thanks. All right, so Billy Graham was super close with Eisenhower. And in a sermon to the legislature, he said, either communism must die or Christianity must die because it's actually a battle between Christ and Antichrist. So this is where you start getting um, this close connection between Christianity and our issues of national security. That becomes more pointed. God is like, deeply concerned with preserving this democracy in the form of white America and Eisenhower was pointed to as the spiritual hope. Eisenhower was one of the first to use very pointed religious rhetoric, and he repeatedly calls for a spiritual revival 
as he's trying to get people on board with their fear of communism, basically. In 1955, Eisenhower said, recognition of the supreme being is the first and most basic expression of Americanism. Billy Graham said, if you would be a loyal American, then become a loyal Christian. We are created for a spiritual mission among the nations. So a gospel that is all about our individualism, it's infiltrated by racism, nationalism, and a desire for power, translates over into the way that evangelicals approach the civil rights movement. Graham said, the one great answer to our racial problem in America is men and women converted to Christ. So we've got that Christian trickle-down effect, I guess, again. Which is also pretty ironic, considering most of the South actually did consider themselves to be Christians at that point. Evangelicals tended to be the ones most against racial policy, or they lobbied for gradualism. They often spoke of all races being equally culpable in racial intolerance. There was a period which King hoped and thought that Graham may kind of switch sides, get involved in the, in the movement. The reason I keep bringing Graham up is honestly, he was like the guy at that point. He represented and spoke for this majority culture Christian pocket. But that was not the case. During the sit-ins in 1960, Graham said, I am convinced that some extreme leaders are going too far and too fast. I'm also concerned about some clergymen of both races that have made the race issue their gospel. This is not the gospel. So evangelicals preached against racial policy changes, and they ended up being some of the last holdouts when legislation actually took place. Some of them wouldn't even integrate for like 10 years after Brown. It was preached that responding to the civil rights movement positively would end up leading everyone to civil disobedience, left-wing politics, and theological liberalism. And throughout all of this, this whole spiritualized concern over communism continued. Evangelicals ended up being significantly more supportive of the war in Vietnam than the rest of the population. Johnson, who also confided in Graham, he was close to a lot of the presidents, and in 1965, in a letter, Graham wrote to Johnson, Perhaps God brought you to the kingdom for such an hour as this, to stop them. In doing so, you could be the man that helped save Christian civilization. So a lot of language about Vietnam early on in the church was kind of making it this holy war. This was a war we were engaging with God. So throughout the 70s, the evangelical church ends up becoming more focused on political affiliation, figuring out who are they going to align with, and this language about a culture war that was like still heavily kind of what I grew up like from this big culture war and we got to win. So here's where we get our friend Jerry Falwell, who focused on moral decline, very much with this fear-based tone like we're being invaded. The end, there was a lot of language about like the end times are coming, the end times are nigh. In the 70s, Falwell did this tour called the I Love America Tour, where he took a bunch of students, traveled around, 
they would sing patriotic songs, and then they would sing religious songs, like the American flags behind them. And then he would get up and preach about how America needs to go back to God. So that's where that whole thing really started, which we still hear all the time. America getting back to what it needs to be. So Falwell launches the moral majority in 79 to specifically be this political movement. And he really heavily uses this idea of um, us being afraid of the moral decline. Falwell said, we are fighting a holy war, and this time we're going to win. So now the shift is the focus is going to be for a while, abortion, homosexuality, school prayer, feminism, evolution, and drugs, or fighting for family values, with the gospel co-signing on all of their specific political views. Reagan was kind of the first to identify and use this potential voting block that was growing. So with evangelicals, Reagan really catered his message, focusing on American exceptionalism, and he used a lot of born-again language, which Christian leaders loved because they've been, they had been starting to think at this point, we need to get our people in the White House. We need to get our people in charge. There was an extensive study of evangelicals done from 80 to 82. And what it showed was they felt a conviction to take aggressive political action in order to protect their personal rights. He, it also showed that they thought that there was only one political stance you could have on all the issues and that it was not possible for you to be liberal and be a Christian. So the moral majority folds and is replaced by Pat Robertson's Christian Coalition. At this point, this group is seen as a powerful voting force to the point that you have senators and presidential candidates attending their Christian coalition conventions in order to court votes. And what they end up doing is becoming more and more savvy with playing upon this whole concept of um, fearing what America might become. So from then, and I would say basically on, that has been the bend of the language. Maneuvering Christianity to affect political power has been the name of the game for a long time. We can probably easily think back to the last few presidential races of how we have seen that. So tracing this kind of helps us see why we have the evangelical culture we do today and where we have idolatry specifically that has been built in over time related to individualism, power, politics, safety, whatever it may be. This is why a lot of evangelicals vote how they do and why it's sometimes puzzling in where it looks anti-gospel. So, what is the solution? What's the solution to idolatry in ourselves and our faith and in our church structures, especially when in this lar on this larger scale, it feels a little hopeless. It um, is a little daunting thinking about what we have to fight against. Well, Paul gives us an answer, and it's a little bit tied in with what Pastor Daryl said last week. If you're here, Pastor Daryl said, you know, this, has, this isn't about striving, right? Paul kind of says the same thing. There is something about remembering and resting 
and what we already have given to us. Chapter 2, verse 5 says, For I may be absent in body, but I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well-ordered you are in the strength of your faith in Christ. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. So church, our fuel and what we orient around in this fight is it's the real gospel. It is a well-ordered strength of faith around the real gospel. This well-ordered here literally means holding back the chaos. So where do we hold back the chaos for ourselves? Where do we need to push against the chaos in our systems? This strength of faith is this language of a tree that is deeply rooted in the soil. So we protect idolatry, or we protect Christianity from idolatry by drawing nourishment from Christ, from the person of Christ, and using that to fight against the chaos. We protect the gospel from idolatry by doing the heavy work of identifying where it is actually present. We draw from what has already been given to us. How do you remember where you are rooted and established? So we have the Holy Spirit, we have each other, but we also have the Word. Do you actually study this? It's not a matter of gaining merit, but this is literally our lifeline. How do you know what is real gospel and not if you don't know what this says? This is what we have to help us know what is truth. How are you going to be ready to identify it? How are you going to remember where your nourishment, your strength comes from? We forget. We have to go back again and again. Kind of great that God hasn't just left us to figure it out on our own. He's given us a lot, and he's given us this. This keeps us sharp. Verse 9 says, For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands, but by putting off the body of flesh and the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. We identify and work out our idolatry by remembering also the fullness we have in Christ. There are no supplementary aspects of grace needed. None. You can't add anything. And I know for some of us that's probably a little frustrating if you're like a doer and you like um, lists and you like actually being able to tangibly say, I've done this. But that actually is a huge relief for us. It is a grace and a relief that there is nothing we can add. We have the fullness. We have everything we could possibly need. So we lean upon the completeness that God has already given us in our standing with Christ and in what he has offered us and what we need to live and what we need to fight and do this. Remember where you have come from. And remember what God did to get you here. 
part of your identity in Christ is that it's all been accomplished for you already. It's already there. And that's easy for us to forget. So in closing, verse 13. When you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. So for those of us in Christ, those of you in Christ, your idolatry has been nailed to the cross. It's done. He's put it to death, and he has made you alive in Christ. The remedy for our idolatry is a crucified and resurrected Christ. And we make it a part of our rhythm to remember again and again. We make it a part of our rhythm to, with each other, remember this is what we pull from. This is where we draw our strength. And we make it a part of our rhythm to remember this is done. This is sufficient. You can't add to this. So the truth of the gospel and what it carries for us and what it carries for brokenness in our systems should light a fire under us, honestly. Working out our idolatry is actually an urgent matter. And it's urgent because this has to do with the actual truth coming to bear. Are you actually representing Christ? Are you actually demonstrating a true gospel to the world? In Christ, you are now one of the people who gets to go after the people who are utilizing the gospel for what is not of God. That's part of why we're here. We're not here just to wait this out. We're here to do the work. We can't be complacent, lazy, or resigned. We just can't. God's people are at stake. People who are hurting are at stake. God's image is being distorted. So don't become weary in doing good. Don't become weary in fighting against your own idolatry in your faith. Don't become weary in fighting against the corporate idolatry in our churches and in our faith systems. There's a lot at stake. So where are you saying with your life that the gospel just isn't enough? Where are you seeking satisfaction power, or comfort outside of the gospel, while maybe even using the gospel to justify it. Be honest, listen to the Holy Spirit, work it out in community, and we do this work until we are not here anymore. And we do this work together because God knew, God knew this is going to be a big task. Y'all need each other. Our only hope of making our way out is the gospel, but good for us, it's already been offered to us. It's already there waiting. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness and faithfulness to us. Father, we thank you that with this huge task we have ahead of us, that we don't need to flounder or do it on our own, 
We thank you that you have given us the spirit to convict, to reveal our idolatry to us. And so I ask you would do that. Help us to be honest with ourselves. Give us the eyes to see. Help us to be honest with one another. Help us to understand more fully what is actually at stake. Father, I also pray for those of us who may be struggling with even um, having an affection for the church. I thank you that you know and understand what it is that we have been through, that where we are grieved and hurting, you grieve as well. But Father, I pray that you would protect us from instead weaponizing that against you and your people. I pray that that would be a space where you would demonstrate yourself, where you would bring healing, where you would give us community that is healthy, and that instead you would revive and restore our love for what church is, not because of what we have seen, but because of what we know it's supposed to be. Father, I thank you that um, our idolatry, for those of us in you, has already been nailed to the cross. So help us to remember that. Help us to remember that you are with us and help us to remember that you have already triumphed. In your holy name we pray. Amen. What we just listened to and what we just heard, it's hard. Let me tell you why it's hard. Sermons like this are very difficult because what the gospel does is it forces us to reckon with our idols, the things we actually don't want to do. So let me just tell you, there's two approaches that you probably have or are having right now to this particular sermon. Any sermon we talk about idolatry, this is where our heart goes. Typically what I want to do is I want to marry my idolatry to the gospel. And so if my idolatry is, wait, my, everything that I trusted in was wrapped up in those heroes, then what, it, what some of us probably did is jumped on Google right now to start checking and finding return salvo so I can have an argument against this later. If that was you, you're probably an idolater. If your mindset immediately went to, oh, wait, no, these are my heroes, I'm feeling really defensive now, that's because your hope, our hope, my hope, my trust was in the words of these particular heroes and not the only hero of the story. Or I started hearing this and went, I know some people that need to hear this. That's probably all of us in here, one of the two. I know somebody that needs to hear this. I know somebody that trusts in that so much, they need to hear this. Why? Because you trust in how wise you are by uh, knowing the right way of thinking, the right way of trusting, the right way of believing. See, we all are idolaters here. We're all trying to marry our idols to the gospel whether our idol of being right and true or our idol of just not being one of the wrong ones. But at the end of the day, we have to get to a place where we're going, Lord, I see where my own idolatry is. And I see not necessarily what needs to be married to the gospel, but what needs to be divorced because of the gospel. That's what the gospel calls us into. So none of us leave here unscathed. None of, none of us leave here going, great, at least I've got the right idea about this particular one. None of us get to go, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm untouched by this. I'm so thankful I'm not an idolater. We all are guilty of it. We all are desperate for the only one who can break our idolatry. And it's not our cleverness. It's not our ability to research. It's not our ability to respond with the right argument. None of those things are it. 
We don't get a chance to look at, I hope none of us here are looking or thinking of other people in this room going, I hope they're paying attention. Because honestly, if that's you, you're not paying attention. This is what we need. This is the gospel that brings us real hope. So as you hear this, and as you're mo- if you're moved, whether angrily or frustrated, if you felt defensive in hearing this, this is for you. If you felt, and I hope all of us on some level felt pricked, if, if you felt like, man, Lord, I, I realize that I don't really just trust in you alone. I trust in you and my right argument. I trust in you and my right positioning. I, I trust in you and the right amount of history that I know or the right the- theological framework that I have. And how do you know that? Because you, you know that you're an idolater when you are so quick to judge and cast condemnation on the one who doesn't have it. Now, for all of us here, if we can honestly say, Lord, I'm desperately in need of knowing you much more intently, much more intimately. I have idols that need to be broken. My prayer is that each and every one of us today would go, I'm even more aware of idols that are desperately in need of being broken, of being divorced. If that's true for you, then what we are celebrating and mourning and, and, and reveling in at this table, that's for you. Ultimately, we're saying we are idolaters and we are desperately in need of it being broken. And the only way it's broken is in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The only way that we come to the table together as fellow idolaters is by placing our trust in him and him alone. So that means if you've still got idolatry in your heart and it's just something you actually don't want broken, don't come. And this has nothing to do with whether or not you get to be a part of the club or whether or not we're in. That's idolatry in and of itself. To come right now just in order to look like someone who's not an idolater is idolatry in and of itself. Jesus doesn't want you to be an idolater. He wants you to know him. So if you're a believer, but you realize there are some things that I'm still hanging on to because this is a part of my identity or this is a part of what makes me who I am. This is something that I hold to because it gives me comfort. It gives me satisfaction. And I don't want to let that go. Then you need to let this time pass so that Jesus can meet you in your idolatry and then come. If you're not a believer, and you're, not just, you're just not sure if this is something uh, that's true for you. And even if you've heard that certain things can be idolatry and maybe you are more of a self-worshipper and you just feel comfortable with that, then let this time pass too so Jesus can meet you right where you are. We want this to be a time where we, we are deeply contemplative of our brokenness, but we also celebrate the fact that we stand pardoned. Pardoned idolaters is who we are. That's who we are. Every single one of us stands. If we are in Christ, we are pardoned idolaters. This is why what we talked about last week is so big. If you cannot see yourself as an idolater, then you won't see your neighbor in this room as a fellow idolater, and you won't have grace and mercy for them. And Jesus says, let this time pass then. Paul says, let this time pass then. Because that's what it means to come and take this worthily. To come and take this worthily is to say, I'm coming as an idolater, a sinner desperately in need of forgiveness. And I cannot withhold grace and mercy from my brother or my sister because they are desperately in need of mercy in the same way that I am. That's why we call this common unity and not just ourselves. So if this is true for you, as you wrestle through your own idolatry, as you wrestle through the things that that you've clung to, that you might be clinging to right now and you are moved by the spirit of God to loosen your grip, to open your hand, to say, Lord, this idol that I've been trusting is yours. This idol that I've been clinging to 
it's yours. If that's true for you, then come, be convinced, be reminded, taste and see that our Lord is indeed good. As our volunteers remind you that uh, we're going to do communion here by the process of intinction, and so you'll walk down the middle aisle, you'll take a piece of gluten-free bread, and you'll dip it in wine or juice as you see fit. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he grabbed the bread after giving thanks for the meal and he broke it in half and he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat of it. In the same manner, he took the cup and he said, this cup, this cup is my blood. Blood poured out for the remission of sins, the blood of a new covenant. Take and drink of it and do this in remembrance of me. This is why Paul says that as often as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. What are we proclaiming? What are we saying? Why do we do this over and over again? I don't know about you, but if I just look back over the week, I can see all the ways that idolatry has been present in my own heart. When I think about all the ways that idolatry has caused my own brokenness, also my own brokenness in relationships, for every relationship that lies broken in your life, on some level, you have to go, Lord, where's my own idolatry in this? Lord, help me to, to figure out where I am in this. If there's a way that I've thought through some of the things that Jen preached on today, has that caused any degree of, of enmity or division on my part or any other issue? Ultimately, us coming to this table is saying, Lord, reconciliation is truly only found in you first. And so with the same grace and mercy that you show me, I'm coming to the table desperate and knowing that I need to show the same. So again, this is where our hope is, if this is where our joy is, if this is where our safety is, then come, let's eat together and enjoy the grace of God. Let's eat.